Welcome to this week's episode of The Rebuilders. I'm Sarah, and with my co-host, Anna, we're on a mission to discover what it takes to rebuild something that isn't working. From businesses to lifestyles to relationships, each week we interview someone who has dug deep to turn around an aspect of their life or work, which is something most of us can relate to in some way during this unpredictable year. You're about to hear a story packed with great lessons and insights. And if you enjoy today's episode, then don't forget to subscribe as we have a new amazing story every week. This week, I'm talking to Sophie Devonshire, CEO of the Marketing Society, a global community of senior marketeers whose purpose is to empower brave leaders. Sophie herself is a brave and experienced business leader, entrepreneur, marketer, best-selling author who's worked in and with multinational companies, successful startups and agencies. She calls herself an acceleration addict, and she's constantly curious about how to speed up success. In fact, her best-selling book, Superfast, Lead at Speed, is a vital read for anyone who finds themselves rebuilding a business at the current time. Sophie chose to talk about rebuilding a broken team, which is fascinating because when we think of rebooting or rebuilding a business, our minds often go to the finances, the operations, the product, the processes. But of course, the people element, the culture element is often the make or break factor. Sophie starts off by explaining why the topic of team is so important to her. I've seen over the last few years quite what a phenomenal difference a super team can make to businesses, to business leaders. In the research for Superfast, I was lucky enough to speak to a hundred amazing leaders, including you, and listen to their stories, understand what had worked for them. And it came up over and over and over again as a really important aspect of what they'd seen as key to their success, building a high performance team. In addition, in my work as an advisor and even just with friends of mine who work in business, I keep seeing this challenge they have, particularly with executive teams or leadership teams or just the whole team that you're working with in making that work. It is very tempting, I know, when you've got a team that isn't quite working, to start blaming the individuals. And while I do believe that you should hire smart and hire fast, if you know somebody's on a team and they are toxic, they're a toxic component of it, I absolutely think when you know, let them go. But often it's not the people who are on your team that matter. It's how they're working together. And it's not just me that says this. One of the best bits of research that's out there is Google's work on looking at what makes a high performance team. They spent a bit of time researching this. They checked all these great teams and they came up with some really helpful learnings for all of us. But the number one principle is it's not who's on your team that matters. It's how they work together. So I just thought when we were talking about how do you rebuild something, that it's an interesting topic to talk about how do you rebuild either a toxic team or not really working team, or you rebuild a so-so team and take it from good to great. It's the $6 million question really, isn't it? Improving a relationship between two people, I think is challenging enough. But then when you're looking at a whole team and there's layers of team, isn't there? There's a core team and then the next layer of team. And people often think, where do you even begin? So what do you observe when a team isn't working well? Like what are the warning signs that might indicate challenges around how the team are working as opposed to it's about the ops model or something else? Inevitably, it often starts with people feeling like things are going too slow. 
And when you dig deep and when you look at what's happening on the team, there's probably three big warning signs or three big problems. There's lack of candor, there's lack of conversational turn-taking, and there's lack of communication. So if you talk to people about what's going wrong, you know that there are side conversations going on. Where I've gone in and actually worked with teams on this, it's fascinating because you spend time with the individuals and they tell you what they're not telling each other because there isn't the psychological safety in the team. There isn't a culture of candor where people are encouraged to discuss things. So that's a warning sign that things aren't working. The lack of conversational turn-taking is a really interesting one. I was thinking recently how nice it would be if Zoom and all these other platforms actually measured this. So measured when you've got a number of people on the screen, the percentage of time that was taken when each of those individuals were talking. Because on a team, the science shows that the really strong teams have a shared airtime. You know what the situation is. You have a really strong dominant leader who does all the speaking or a couple of people who do all the speaking in a meeting or in a team. And then the really smart ones or the introverted ones or the ones with great ideas aren't encouraged to speak up, don't argue, don't have the safety to do it. So you don't get the conversational turn taking. That's a great warning sign. And then lack of communication, I think, around the meetings as well. We can observe people in their team meetings and when they're together, when you're looking at teams. But actually, another thing that really slows things down and falls apart is that sense of, oh, why wasn't I told about that? Or have you had a side conversation? Well, you're playing golf together and there aren't the mechanisms set up or the culture set up for people to communicate as a team. So I think those three things are really helpful if you're sense checking. Do we have a culture of candor? Do people speak up? Do they feel psychologically safe enough to argue with each other? In sessions when we're together, does everybody properly have a voice? And in sessions when we're not together, how are people learning together, listening together, discussing things together, particularly as we're all working in a remote, distributed, virtual situation now, that's absolutely exacerbating things. You can't just grab somebody in the kitchen when you're having a cup of tea. So strong communication habits are a problem. We are in this odd virtual world. What are we, week 15 of lockdown? And we're only seeing our team, you know, text, calls, WhatsApps, and then through a screen. How is it affecting the ability to create that open, candid dialogue with people, do you think? Obviously, you're getting to know your new team members. Does it have an impact on what should people be looking out for and what should they try and do? It's even more important when we're all working virtually to slow down and think properly about how we are setting up a culture of candor. Why should we be candid with each other? We can't improve iterate and evolve as people or as teams or as businesses without being prepared for radical candor. Kim Scott's work in this area, I know you love as well, and it's so powerful and useful. She talks about what truth can do to accelerate. And sometimes it hurts, but it is helpful. It comes from a story she tells about a time she was with Sheryl Sandberg, who was her boss at the time. Sheryl Sandberg gave her some constructive feedback, which hurt. After a meeting, she told her that she was saying um too much in the presentation. But she accepted that feedback because she had a great relationship with Cheryl. She trusted what Cheryl wanted from her was to help her. And when you care about somebody, you do give them the feedback. I'm a big fan of that Kim Scott book, Radical Candor. It's worth anyone having a read of. Radical Candor has been parodied quite a lot. You know, for anyone who watches the IT crowd, it's parodied as people in Silicon Valley walking around being really rude to each other, which of course it's not. 
But nonetheless, I might think, well, you know, if Sheryl Sandberg gave me some advice, I'd probably accept it and take it as coming from on high. But what about if we're talking about teams where people are on the same level as each other, or maybe people are managing clients, and it's not quite the Sheryl Sandberg relationship? How do people harness honesty and be candid in a productive way? One of the ways in which you do it, and of course, it's good to model as a leader, but also to get everybody to do it is to think about easy questions. So there's lots of people who just make sure as a habit, so building in as a behavior after every meeting, those people who've been in the meeting talk about what worked well or even better if, and encourage them to ask each other those questions. When I worked for the Caffeine Partnership, as a team, we developed the personal positive and polish framework for every workshop or leadership summit we ran where everybody who was in there had to give each other feedback and talk about personally what was helpful for them what worked what should be polished so what could we do better next time and positive so this is your point about the IT crowd parody radical candor is not going publish improve it or the W1A's director of better what this needs to be is better it's more let's find the positive so I think this is really really important When you're building a great team, you build on people's strengths and they need to recognize those strengths and they need to feel good about them. So very specifically in the feedback, so guidance, Kim Scott uses the word rather than feedback, very specifically saying, what you did there, Gerald, when you said X to the client, I thought that was particularly clever because, or the style in which you did that. So you're giving them positive reinforcement of what works as well. There's quite a lot of science around how positive reinforcement works in education and on people generally. It's not just, hey, you're so fantastic. You did so fantastically there. It's specific. I think you are very good at expressing yourself pithily or you're very good at connecting and making that fun. So giving people those positives is incredibly powerful. And that's part of candor as well. She talks, Kim Scott, about being as specific as possible, doesn't she? That actually quite generic praise is not helpful and can be harmful. So just saying, oh, I thought you did a great meeting because the person receiving it just thinks, were you really listening? Can you not summon up anything more specific about my performance than you did a great meeting? I found that really interesting, that actually trying to be really specific about the positive comments you give people, demonstrating that as a manager, you're really, really paying attention to their performance and that you've cared enough to do so. Yeah, well, so it's a caring sign. But to go back to your point about same level rather than your boss giving you feedback or junior, I think, again, this is something you can role model and encourage. I did my very first Marketing Society webinar yesterday, which was really fun. I asked everybody in the team afterwards to give me some radically candid feedback. Please tell me what can I improve? And it wasn't just a generic thing. I asked a few people specifically. And it was really valuable for me. They could tell me what I did at the start, where my face was too close to the camera. They told me what they could value. And I can't see that myself, so it's a proper gift to me. But I asked and asked and asked until they gave me the critical, candid, here's what you can improve side of it. If there's someone listening and they're starting a role or maybe they run a business and they've got a sense that, okay, maybe the team aren't being as candid as they could be, that there's corridor conversations, that kind of thing. I guess even to start to get on the journey to repairing that, there needs to be a candid conversation. So what's the first step in rebuilding a team? There's probably thinking through the who, the what and the when a little bit around the team. And this is very much something that takes a bit of time. The who is where you start with understanding who is on the team, what their strengths are, what their preferred ways of working are, what their challenges are, 
what they bring to the table in terms of cognitive diversity, which is really important, the different perspectives, different way their brains work, understanding each other's personality types and preferences and stepping into each other's shoes, spending a bit of time understanding each other is incredibly powerful because then you can work out how to navigate things, how to communicate better together and to appreciate each other's differences. Because that's the point about a super team. You bring cognitive diversity, you bring different perspectives, you work better. The whole is greater than the sum of the parts, as Aristotle said. So spending time making sure the team understand each other is really powerful. And that's why if the team aren't working together that often or if they are separate, you do need to spend time working on that. So there's the who, then there's the what. When you know what the differences are, can you work out what you have in common? What's the purpose of the team? What are you working together on as well? And the what is being candid right from the start about the blockers and barriers that cause problems. I know an amazing guy who founded a company who is from quite a tough background. And he told me honestly about another of the team who's a classic old Etonian, lovely, lovely person. But you could see that there was a difference in their backgrounds. And what was great was the founder and CEO was very honest and had that conversation with him about, I have my stereotypical prejudices against you. So I need to get to know what's underneath it all. And let's talk about that. So just recognising that actually some of the blockers and barriers can be cultural in different ways. So getting the who, getting the what and talking about that and having a bit of fun around it as well, using language and a shared lexicon. One of my favourite examples is Airbnb. They're very good at measuring things. And so they tested and they understood that one of their culture amp surveys showed they weren't as open as honest as they should be. Joe Gebbia threw out an idea to help with this where he talked about elephants, dead fish and vomit. Basically, elephants are the big things in the room that nobody talks about. Dead fish, I love this, are things that happened a few years ago that people can't get over. And vomit, the last one, something that people need to just get off their mind. They just need someone to sit there and listen. I get this. I think everybody has this in a team where sometimes you want to go, I just want to talk about the fact that this is bloody frustrating. The point here is Joe Gebbieth, he recognised there was a problem because he was measuring it. He wanted to do something to open it up and he found a really unusual way of expressing it so that when people came into a meeting, they could say, right, I can see there's a dead fish here. Let's talk about it. And it's almost humorous. It makes it easier. It just gives people a way of identifying it, I guess, and calling it out without it being too personal. You talk about those two guys having a chat sort of saying, you know, I'm bringing prejudices or presuppositions about you because of your background and my background. You're like, goodness me, you've got to be quite brave to have that conversation in a professional capacity. Bravery is very much on my mind at the moment because the Marketing Society's purpose is all around empowering brave leadership. And the conversations we're having around what that means is fascinating. Being brave enough to tell the truth because you're helping the team, being brave enough to have a different point of view because that's going to help create creative abrasion where you take an idea and you polish it together and being brave enough to actually help other people by sharing some honest things, which can include being positive. A lot of people are scared to say to other people, you are brilliant because X. They think good people know it already and they won't share it, but being brave enough to speak up makes all the difference to speed and success, I think. So interesting. We've talked a lot at TVWA about resilience, which I think is connected to bravery in a way. In your new role at the Marketing Society and with your huge experience in the past, 
bravery? Is it just something that people have or they don't have? Or is it like a muscle that people can work on and bring it into their role more and embrace that more? You're right. I think the muscle is a good way of defining it, your bravery muscle. Thomas Barter, who's worked with the Society on a lot of research around the idea of brave leadership, breaks it down broadly into three areas. So he talks about psychological bravery, moral bravery, and something to do with speed, which of course I love. So psychological, exposing yourself as being vulnerable by saying, I don't know, or sharing the thoughts which help the team but challenge it, or the moral bravery, lots of questions at the moment about how leaders are helping make business a positive force for good in the world, particularly marketing leaders. There's a whole bunch of things around that. And then speed is the willingness to take risks and move fast and make things happen. And all those elements of bravery are individual, but they're also part of being a great team. So working together on, are we prepared to move fast and make things happen? Are we prepared to make a stand and stand up for what we believe in? And are we prepared as individuals and as a team to not be perfect, but still to be open and share and discuss things? You obviously have been a leader yourself. You have built many teams. And as we start to talk about things like bravery and moral bravery, psychological bravery, they are very personal, human attributes. As you found yourself in situations where you're not just advising other people on teams, but actually managing it yourself, what are the sort of traits that you have had to draw upon yourself? There is a challenging sequence which as somebody who is naturally an impatient leader, I'm aware I need to deal with. Good leaders are pace setters. They know when to slow down to think, to explore the ideas, to listen and connect, to build a team which is a slower, more thorough experience. And then once that's done, they're able then to make higher velocity decisions and move with an action bias. I'm certainly seeing this right now. It's one of the biggest challenges. Because the desire just to get things moving is there. I've inherited an incredible team at Marketing Society. And part of the fun of the last couple of weeks has been getting to know everybody as individuals. I want us to work slowly to build the foundations for the future. So I think that's quite a challenge to get the pace right. One of the things that I've learned across the years is to value the differences of people then when you add into that the concept of diversity, which is not just about race and background and gender, it's about bringing cognitive diversity, different perspectives, different ways in which your brains work together. That's when the magic happens. Anybody who's ever worked on great teams, it's such an amazing feeling. You make things happen fast. It's fun. It's energizing. And trying to keep bringing that into the workplace so that you love your work and you can enjoy it and you can make things happen, particularly right now when we're all about to go through another few months of even more challenging times. It's been interesting to say the least. We need the magic of a super team. That's such a lovely place to end on, Sophie. There's so many good pieces of advice, nuggets and models in there. What would be your one piece of advice for someone who is embarking on rebuilding a team? Don't think you need to do it alone. You can move faster and further by building on the insights of others. It's like technology. Don't build the platform from scratch. Take elements and you'll get there faster. There are people out there who can help get a team coach. I've got some great recommendations. Read the books, Psychological Safety by Amy Edmondson, Kim Scott, Radical Candor. 
All Blacks Legacy. Patrick Lencioni is a great person. The insights are out there. So don't do it alone. And draw on the advice of peers and other people who've built teams. Everybody goes through this. There's your network and other people who've been through it that you can draw on to help speed up your success with building a great team. That's brilliant. Don't do it alone. That's excellent advice. Thank you so much for coming on. I could just talk about this topic for ages and ages because it's so interesting and it's so complex and people are such fascinating and unusual creatures and so full of potential. But I think it's one of the hardest things to do. And one of the most rewarding things to do is just get that dynamic right. You've been listening to The Rebuilders, hosted by me, Sarah Tate, in conversation with Sophie Devonshire from the Marketing Society. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please feel free to post it and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Join us again next Wednesday for a new episode of The Rebuilders with Mark Lewis, Dean of the School of Communication Arts. He talks so passionately about rebuilding his own life after a breakdown and taking on the mission of reopening the incredible establishment that is the SCA. 